0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hello again. I'm Britt Glonsinger. I'm a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And in my first lecture, I gave some general information about why viruses have been such fantastic teachers of biology. And in this lecture, I'm going to go into some more specifics on research from my own lab about how herpes viral infection alters the gene expression landscape of host cells and how we can use these viruses as tools to better understand gene regulation in mammals. So, herpes viruses are endemic in the human population. Nearly every single human is infected with at least one and often more than one type of herpes that they start acquiring relatively early in life. Now, We're not the only ones infected with herpes. It's estimated that probably most vertebrates have at least one herpes virus associated with them. And we now know that even invertebrates like oysters and coral can have herpes viruses. Now, these are not the same herpes viruses as those that infect humans. Herpes viruses are very species-specific. But nonetheless, it should give you a sense that herpes viruses are really widespread on the planet. And they're also really ancient. It's estimated that these viruses have been around and evolving for close to 200 million years. And that's one of the reasons why we think that they make excellent tools to understand virus-host interactions. Now, the fact that most humans are infected with at least one herpes virus might sound alarming, except for the observation that in the majority of these cases, the infections are pretty much asymptomatic or produce only mild disease. And that's because your immune system does an excellent job of keeping them at bay. However, under conditions where immune surveillance is impaired, herpes viruses can be devastating. So, this can occur, for example, in the elderly, as immune surveillance begins to wane. Individuals can have herpes viral reactivations, for example, that cause shingles. Or, when... A neonate is infected with a herpes virus. These types of congenital infections that occur when an immune system is not yet fully developed can cause extremely serious, lifelong diseases. Or when an individual has another disease or disorder that causes immune suppression, for example, HIV and AIDS. Under these circumstances, herpes viruses are real killers. My lab studies a subfamily of herpes viruses called gamma herpes viruses. These are illustrated in this picture here. They have two human virus members: Epstein-Barr virus and Kaposi sarcoma-associated herpes virus, or KSHV. Both of these viruses cause human cancers. They can cause types of B-cell cancer, and KSHV is the etiologic agent of the main AIDS-defining illness of the 1980s, Kaposi sarcoma. KSHV also remains a very common cause of cancer in areas of sub-Saharan Africa, one of the dominant causes of cancer in this area, due to the huge HIV endemicity there. So, any herpes virus infection begins with the virus needing to deposit its double-stranded DNA genome into the nucleus. Generally, these viruses are not integrating into the host genome like a retrovirus does. But instead, the genome is being circularized into what's called an episome, and tethered to the host chromatin. In this state, they're relatively quiescent. This is a state called latency. And their ability to exist in this quiescent state is the reason why, if you are infected with a herpes virus, even early in life, you will never clear that virus. That's because this quiescent state is basically immunologically silent. Your immune system doesn't know the virus is there, So, it doesn't know which cells to eliminate. Now, in this quiescent state, the virus is not actively replicating. So, in order for it to spread between cells or between hosts, it needs to reactivate from this latent state and engage in active or lytic replication. This is the phase of the viral life cycle when there are dramatic changes to the host gene expression environment as the virus is commandeering and manipulating and hijacking host machinery to get its own genes expressed and its genome replicated, so that it can produce progeny virions that will go on and spread to neighboring cells. It's this phase of the viral life cycle that my lab is focused on, and in understanding what are some of these dramatic changes and how can we use them to understand gene regulation in human cells. Turns out that early on we showed that One of the relatively dramatic changes that is happening during lytic gamma herpes virus infection is that there's widespread depletion of messenger RNA, largely from the cytoplasm of these cells. Something like 60 to 80% of messages are depleted during lytic gamma herpes virus infection. And this is carried out by a virally-encoded nuclease that in KSHV is called SOX, SOX is a factor that plays a number of important roles in the context of the viral life cycle, and its RNA degradation activity is important for helping the virus maintain its normal gene expression cascade and escape the immune system and replicate in the context of an in vivo host. And for these and other reasons, we've been really interested in understanding how SOX recognizes its targets and how we can use that information to study gene regulation. And so my talk here will be broken into two sections. The first is detailing our efforts to understand this initial targeting event. How does a viral nuclease target such a breadth of RNAs? And in the second part of my talk, we're going to take a step back and say, how do we use this information, this nuclease, as a tool to better understand how cells sense and respond to large changes in messenger RNA abundance? So, when thinking about SOX targeting, we were faced with somewhat of a paradox. We knew that the majority of messenger RNAs in a cell could be targeted by this nuclease. Yet, we also knew that targeting seemed to occur at specific sites. And contrary to what one might expect for a nuclease that targets many RNAs, You might think that the sites that it would recognize are relatively simple, maybe a preferred dinucleotide, for example. But this is not the case at all. When we mapped targeting sites on individual reporter RNAs for SOx, we required a pretty large amount of sequence context, 25 nucleotides to sometimes 100 or more nucleotides that we had to insert into a new location in the RNA to direct SOx cleavage there. So, how do you have this seemingly complicated recognition element, yet one that has to be present on most messenger RNAs? The other unusual feature is that while well, it wasn't recognizing an RNA based on relative position to a landmark feature, like cleaving next to the 5' prime cap or at a splice junction or near a termination codon, we found that these recognition sites could really be anywhere along the length of an RNA. So, to understand this seemingly, you know, paradoxical situation of specificity with breadth, we reasoned that we needed to know, at a much larger scale, the exact cleavage sites that this nuclease had on the cellular transcriptome. Identifying cleavage intermediates is notoriously challenging. And that's because, as I mentioned in my first talk, RNAs are protected at either end by a cap and a poly A tail, and once these are removed... RNAs are very rapidly degraded by host exonucleases, like XRN1. So, if you're trying to trap a cleavage intermediate, say, that SOX is generating, as soon as that intermediate is is generated, these host exonucleases are going to chew up that intermediate, so it's going to be hard to see that initial cleavage event. However, we had known from our previous research that XRN1 played a really important role in getting rid of this 3' fragment that is generated upon SOX cleavage. So, we found that if we deleted XRN1, or depleted it from cells, we could stabilize this degradation intermediate and then identify these cleavage intermediates that represented the initial cleavage event genome-wide, using a technique called parallel analysis of RNANs, or PairSeq. In doing this analysis and then asking are there similarities in the sequences surrounding all of these cleavage sites? What we found is that while it's true that the cleavage sites seem to be relatively large, that they're anchored not by a strong, complicated sequence consensus, but instead by a few anchor residues. And I'm going to highlight a couple of these anchor residues that we now know to be quite important for targeting. The first is a stretch of adenosines that is just upstream of the cleavage site. And our analysis of the folding prediction of RNA, or surrounding this site, suggested that these adenosines needed to be unpaired, so not sort of in a base-paired configuration. And the second was that right at the cleavage site, we could usually see nucleotides that were Cs or Ts or sometimes As, but there was never a G there. And so it suggested to us that there was probably a combination of sequence and structure that went into recognition by this viral nuclease. So, the first thing that we did is we took one of these RNAs that we had identified from our pair analysis in cells. It's an RNA called LIMD1 that we knew had a really robust SOX targeting site. And we used inline probing to determine the structure of this RNA. And what we found was that, indeed, as the predictions had suggested... This stretch of A's, which I've circled here, is indeed in this loop region, so unpaired. And just to orient you, the cut site here is a couple of nucleotides downstream from that. So, knowing this RNA structure, we could now go in and say, why are these nucleotides important? Why are these sequences important for SOX targeting? Or are they important for SOX targeting? So, we made a series of mutations on this targeting site. And three mutations in particular I'm going to show you. First, we made a mutation where we changed that cut site to the non-preferred G, just to see, does it really matter if you have a G there or not? And the second two mutations had to do with testing the importance of that stretch of A's. We either mutated that stretch of A's to a stretch of G's instead, or what we did was we kept the A's there but created a series of complementary base-pairing interactions to zipper them up so they were no longer present in an open conformation. And what this allowed us to distinguish was, is the sequence important and or is their structural presentation important? And so, what we did first was we asked, how well does the enzyme recognize these RNAs if we change these features? What is its catalytically activity like on these RNAs? And we mixed the RNA, wild-type or mutant substrates with purified SOX protein, and then measured its catalytic activity, as shown in this graph here. And what you can see from the first bar, this is the wild-type RNA, is that the enzyme has high catalytic activity on this substrate. It cleaves the RNA very well. However, for each of the mutants that we made, there was a significant impairment in SOX's catalytic activity on these RNAs, indicating that... Indeed, these sequence features that we had pulled out of the sequence analysis are key to the viral nuclease recognition. So, what are they doing for recognition? To answer that question, we next wanted to evaluate how well SOx bound these RNA substrates. Now, this might seem intuitive, but in fact, in the field, it had been assumed for many years that this enzyme didn't have any robust uh, RNA binding activity. And we thought, perhaps this was the case because people weren't testing it using a bona fide targeting RNA element. And so we measured the binding capacity of the enzyme to this element using a technique called biolayer interferometry, or BLI, which allows us to measure real-time binding kinetics. And these are measured as dissociation constants. And the key to remember about KDs is that the smaller the number, the tighter the binding. So, when we measured SOX binding to the wild-type RNA, the first important thing that we noted, which was in this dark blue bar here, is that, in fact, it bound this RNA very tightly. The dissociation constant was about 8 or 10 nanomolar. So, indeed, it is a very robust RNA binding enzyme. If we mutated that cut site G, which impairs its catalytic activity, that's shown in the second bar... Binding is fine, so we can separate binding from catalysis here. However, either of the mutants where we changed the stretch of adenosines or zippered them up... these are the third and the fourth bars here... these mutants severely impaired binding, pushing it into the micromolar range, which indicates that this loop structure with the adenosines presented in the loop serves as a landing pad, and in fact a very specific landing pad, for this enzyme. And we've confirmed this using things like RNA footprinting analyses. So, what this has told us is this type of motif, where you have a structure anchored by a few key residues, probably helps resolve this paradox of specificity with breadth because it enables the enzyme to target RNAs at very specific sites, but because the structure itself is not particularly complex, and you don't require a large amount of sequences that have to always be the same, you can target a breadth of RNAs. Why do we care about understanding how a nuclease like this recognizes RNA? There are a few reasons. First, we know from viral infections that not all RNAs are targeted for cleavage by a virus. In fact, you might imagine that there are RNAs that the virus needs to keep around to produce machinery that the virus needs to use. And so, understanding how those are escaping can't be done if you don't know how the nuclease targets an RNA in the first place. We can now appreciate that probably a large subset of these RNAs are escaping because they don't form this correct sequence-structure combination. However, we also know that there are subsets of RNAs that even if we give them a perfect SOX target recognition site, they don't get cleaved. And it turns out this is because they have an extra protective sequence, which we now call a nuclease escape element that is found in their 3' untranslated region. And something about this sequence actively guards the RNA against cleavage by SOX and, as it turns out, against cleavage by many other viral endonucleases. So, understanding this interplay is helping us understand how viruses can reshape the gene expression environment, and maybe how the cell can fight back against them. So, I'm going to shift to the second portion of my talk now and tell you about how we've used SOX as a tool to better understand how cells sense and respond to these large changes in RNA abundance that we know can happen during a number of different viral infections. And in thinking about this, we were really intrigued by the idea that there might be surprising connections between different stages of the gene expression cascade. Classically, people think about gene expression as a pretty linear series of events, beginning with RNA production through transcription in the nucleus, processing of that RNA by capping and splicing and polyadenylation, then export of that RNA into the cytoplasm, where it's translated by ribosomes into proteins, and then ultimately, at the end of the RNA's life, it's degraded. However, it's now appreciated that, in fact, this is not really a linear series of events. There's lots of crosstalk that can occur between these different stages. And crosstalk that I'm going to tell you about today connects, actually, the very last stage of the RNA's life, that of RNA degradation, with the very first stage of its life, that of its production or transcription in the nucleus. Our thinking about this has been really informed by lots of work that's been done in the yeast system, where it's been shown that, in fact, cells have ways of sensing changes in RNA decay or changes in the rate of RNA synthesis, and altering one of those two rates to compensate for those changes. The idea here is that if you had, for example, less RNA produced, then you'd want to keep that RNA around longer to have the same amount of genes that you needed in the translation pool. This is called the homeostatic model, and there are examples of it in mammalian cells as well. However, we thought that maintaining homeostasis might not be the goal of the cell in the context of viral infection. And so, what happens when you greatly accelerate RNA decay, as many viruses do? Does the cell try and compensate in a homeostatic way, or does it view this as a threat? And so, to test this, what we wanted to do was ask, how does RNA degradation influence transcription? And we could do this just by expressing these viral nucleases. So, an experiment that I'm going to show you here is one in which we take cells and we transfect them with an empty vector, or a vector encoding a viral endonuclease like SOX, or another one, VHS, which is from herpes simplex virus, also broadly cleaves RNA, but is not related to uh, the SOX nuclease, or a catalytically dead version of SOX. And then we measure transcription in these cells, either by looking at nascent RNA production using a technique called 4-thiouridine labeling, or 4-SU, which is shown in this experiment, or by measuring occupancy of RNA polymerase at host promoters. This is called RNA-PAL2-CHIP, and I'm going to show you that in some later experiments. So, what you should notice from this first experiment, though, is that when we add SOX or VHS to cells, that drives RNA degradation, and we measure RNA synthesis, we can see that in these cells, RNA synthesis is greatly reduced. This relies on the catalytic activity of the enzyme, because we don't see impaired RNA synthesis if we add a catalytically dead version of the SOX gene to these cells. So, this suggests that eliciting widespread RNA decay in the cytoplasm does something to greatly reduce transcription in the nucleus. How might this happen? We thought of a couple of different possibilities here, which are not mutually exclusive. One is that you could envision a scenario where cleavage of particular RNAs matter. For example, RNAs that themselves are involved in transcriptional regulation or transcriptional control, you get rid of those, they can't be translated into protein... If the protein that's already around in the cell is labile and gets degraded, then it's just... its levels fall and you impair transcription. A second model is that cells have some way of actually sensing or detecting the active degradation of RNAs in general, the depletion of the messenger RNA pool. And here, just cleavage of the RNA, as the viral enzyme is doing might not be sufficient. You might need to actually have degradation of the RNA, which we know is carried out by the basal cellular enzymes. So, we could distinguish between these possibilities in the case where we're just expressing the viral nuclease by depleting these cellular enzymes from cells and asking what happens. And what I'm going to show you is that in these experiments, it appears that there's evidence for cellular sensing of overall rates of decay. We've done a number of experiments to test this, and I'm just going to show you one for simplicity. In this experiment, what we're doing is we're asking, what happens to RNA polymerase II occupancy in cells when we express SOX? And then, when we prevent those, degre- those cleaved fragments from being degraded by getting rid of the cellular exonuclease XRN1 using siRNA. And so, what you can see here is that when we express Sox in cells that have XRN1, so the RNA fragments are efficiently degraded, there is a decrease in rna pol II occupancy at promoters, as I'd shown you previously, using RNA synthesis experiments. And so, this is reflective of the fact that RNA decay causes transcriptional repression. We don't see that decrease if we use the catalytically inactive version, which is shown in the white bar next to it. However... In SOx-expressing cells, if now we get rid of Exeran1, so the fragments are no longer degraded, now RNA polymerase 2 occupancy remains high at this representative promoter, suggesting that it's relying on the degradation of the already inactivated fragment that's happening in cells uh, in order to send this signal from the cytoplasm to the nucleus. So, how might this signal be sent, or what might the signal be, uh, that allows cells to detect accelerated rates of RNA decay, as can happen during infection? Well, in thinking about this, we reasoned that RNAs, of course, are not naked in a cell. They're coded by lots of RNA-binding proteins. And that as you vision what's happening with an RNA as it's being degraded, Well, one of the things is that these RNA-binding proteins are getting released from that RNA. And we know that many of the RNA-binding proteins themselves are shuttling proteins. They can move in between the nucleus and the cytoplasm, because, of course, RNA itself starts out in one compartment and usually ends up in the other. And so you could envision that under a scenario where you start to have lots of RNA decay... The release of RNA-binding proteins is such that you have many more unbound proteins than bound proteins to RNA, and that these proteins may start to differentially shuttle between the two compartments, sending a signal from the cytoplasm to the nucleus. To test this hypothesis, we set out to chart the scale of protein redistribution in cells that occurs in response to RNA degradation. And to do this, we partnered with Ileana Christa's lab at Princeton University, because they're experts in measuring protein abundance by mass spectrometry, also in the context of herpes viral infection. The basic experimental setup here was to take cells in which we were expressing empty vectors, or as a control, our wild-type SOX nuclease, shown in green here, or a catalytically dead version of the nuclease, shown in yellow. Additionally, we engineered cells where we had knocked out, using CRISPR technology, XRN1, because we knew that it was probably more than just that initial SOx cleavage event that was important, but it relied on the subsequent degradation of those RNAs. So, we could look for things that were both SOx-dependent and XRN1-dependent. For each of these samples, we separated the cells into the nuclear fraction and the cytoplasmic fraction, extracted proteins from both of those fractions and labeled them using isobaric tags called tandem mass tags. These are tags that can be identified during the process of mass spectrometry. So, then we could measure protein abundance in both of these compartments. And what we were looking for here were proteins whose abundance shifted from one compartment to the other compartment during RNA degradation. For example, going up in the nucleus and going down in the cytoplasm. And indeed, that's what we found. So, if you look at this heat map here, that's shown in blue, the center bar shows what's happening during cells... in the context of cells expressing this viral nuclease. Darker blue means proteins that are becoming enriched in the nucleus relative to the cytoplasm in these cells. So, we see a whole collection of proteins that look like they're shifting from one compartment to another they're not shifting in cells where we're expressing the catalytically dead version of the nuclease, shown in the first bar. And gratifyingly, most of them, as it turns out, about 60%, don't shift in the cells where we have knocked out exorin-1, confirming that it's RNA degradation that's doing this. Now, we looked at all proteins in a cell, but when we did go-molecular function analysis, we found that, as we might have predicted the signatures of the types of proteins that are coming out here are things associated with poly A binding, poly U binding, messenger RNA 3 prime UTR binding, just the sort of things you'd expect to get released from an RNA as it's undergoing degradation. We think probably a number of these Im- pro- pro- proteins that are shifting are important for this phenotype. I just want to draw your attention to two of them though. And these are the cytoplasmic poly A binding proteins. PABPC, or PABC1, and PABC4. These are proteins that consistently rise to the top or near the top of our list. And as you can see in these graphs below, in both cases, these are proteins that in SOX-expressing cells, the wild-type nucleus expressing cells, increase in the nucleus, that's the purple dots here, and decrease in the cytoplasm. These are the teal dots. You don't see changes in their abundance in... Uh, cells expressing the catalytically dead version. All right. So, we would predict that if RNA-binding proteins are things that are important for conveying this information, then if we depleted these RNA-binding proteins from cells, we might now decrease that signal that connects RNA decay in the cytoplasm to transcription in the nucleus. And this appears to be the case. I'm showing you here depletion experiments for these PabC1 and PabC4 proteins. And when we deplete these from cells and look at the relative occupancy of RNA polymerase II at representative promoters in the presence or absence of SOX, you can see that, well, when the proteins are around, as we've shown uh, before, you get significantly less PAL2 occupancy at promoters because transcription is being repressed. However, upon depletion of these factors, now the relative difference between cells lacking and containing the viral nuclease is much different. We don't think that these two proteins are the only players in this pathway. We think they're a component of perhaps several players that are involved in this that we're in the process of exploring further. So, what I've shown you here so far is that as... We degrade RNAs in cells, initiated by a viral endonuclease, like KSHV-SOX. These RNAs, once they're cleaved, the fragments are degraded by cellular exonucleases, like XRN1. This leads to release of RNA-binding proteins from these RNAs, many of which we think can shuttle... And once you reach a certain threshold of RNA decay, these proteins, like the poly A binding proteins, start to accumulate in the nucleus. And we suspect that this might be interpreted as a stress signal by the cell. And that leads to decreased transcription by RNA polymerase II of many host genes. I just want to take the last minute to answer another question which is... well, I've been telling you all about these host genes, but as it turns out, of course, herpes viruses need RNA polymerase 2 to transcribe their own genes. So, why would they activate a pathway that is going to decrease the activity of a transcription complex that they need for every single event of viral transcription? They must be escaping this, Right? And indeed, they are. So, if you look at RNA polymerase II occupancy across the viral genome, and here I'm just showing you a trace from a particular region of the genome, what I hope you can appreciate is that there's not much of a difference between the upper and the lower bar. And this is cells infected with wild-type virus or a gamma herpes virus where the SOX gene is mutated. And this is dramatically different from what the host genome looks like, where there's a clear difference in susceptibility. That tells us that the virus is escaping this transcriptional repression phenotype. And the reason we think it's escaping this phenotype is that viral replication happens in what are called replication compartments in the nucleus. These are not membrane-bound, but they are local concentrations of factors that the virus needs to express its genes... And to replicate its genome. And these replication factors, we think, form a protective environment for the virus to do things outside of uh, regulation by the host. And in fact, in these replication compartments, if we put a promoter that is not from the virus onto the viral genome, it escapes transcriptional repression. Conversely, if we take one of the viral promoters outside of the virus and outside of the replication compartment, and insert it into the host cell's genome, it now becomes repressed just like the host genome is. So, we think that these compartments are the mechanism by which the virus is able to activate this transcription repression pathway that decreases host transcription, but the virus is able to now use that polymerase for its own purposes. Okay. So, in general, what I've shown you during this lecture is that... Viruses like gamma herpes viruses are able to dramatically reshape the gene expression environment of a host cell during infection. And they do this... one way that they do this, at least, is through encoding a nuclease, like the Soxin a nuclease that I told you today, which is able to target a broad set of RNAs in a cell, but with a high degree of specificity, using a combination of sequence and structure to make up its targeting element on these RNAs. Once this enzyme cleaves these RNAs, these inactivated fragments are now fed into the cellular basal RNA decay pathway and cleared by an enzyme called exern one And during the process of exern one chewing up these fragments, proteins are released from the RNA. Some of these proteins start to traffic into the nucleus. And we think this is interpreted as some sort of a stress signal, leading to broadly re- reduced transcription of host genes... But the virus is able to escape this through the formation of these replication compartments in the nucleus that allow it to concentrate the polymerase in a cell and transcribe viral genes. All right. I'll end there by acknowledging generous funding from a number of sources that has contributed to these projects that are ongoing in my lab. And I'd also like to thank all current and past members of the Glonsinger Lab that have contributed broadly to the experiments that I showed you today, and individual members named here who have contributed to specific experiments that I showed in this lecture. Thank you very much for listening. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.